like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, we will be beginning our look at the short stories Dick published in 1964. This is, um, well, 63 and 64, these two years were a period where Dick returned to writing short stories, but he was writing a lot of other things at the time, so I think these short stories sometimes get overshadowed, partially because of the themes in a lot of these stories, like Novelty Act and What Dead Men Say, uh, Little Black Box. These stories end up in his some of his 1960s novels, so these sometimes get looked at as first drafts of those novels. Nevertheless, I think, you know, especially 1964 was, in a way, the last hurrah of Dick's short stories. He'll still continue to publish short stories here and there sporadically for the rest of his career, but he never went back to the intensity of writing short stories again after 1960, after the ones he published in 1964. And even this never gets back to the massive, impressive explosion of short stories we saw Dick Wright in, in 52, 53. You know, when I, I, when I started this podcast, I was doing, you know, two episodes a week and mostly on those early short stories. And it took me almost a year to get through those, those early short stories. Um, so that's just a, just a sign of just how much he, he wrote in those, those years. Um, so he's not going to come back to writing short stories with nearly this intensity. And, I actually think the quality of the short stories declines a little bit, with a few exceptions. Electric Ant, certainly, um, Pre-Persons, and a few others. But especially when we get to the late 70s and 80s, I think the quality in the short stories declines a little bit. Uh, that's actually, I think, true of his novels as well. Something I'll talk about when I get to, I guess, what will be season three of this podcast when we start to look at the 1970s. But anyways, the 1960s short stories are a lot of fun. I think Dick has significantly sort of chilled out by this point in his career, and in some cases he's being more reflective and experimental. And yeah, a lot of these themes do get recycled into his novels, but they don't all get recycled. And anyways, they're a fun group of short stories. Anyways, and, and maybe shouldn't all be taken too seriously, but you know, there's something special about them. So I think this period of, of, of writing is... is is worth pointing out, especially because they, they seem to get drowned out in the novels of 1964 and 65, of which there are so many and so many great ones. So um, we're going to do a brief series here over a few weeks where we're going to look at all of the short stories of 64. Really, it'll be from Water Spider to Precious Artifact. And in the middle will be Little Black Box, A Game of Unchance, What Dead Men Say, War of the Fnules, O.W. Blobo, Orpheus with Clay Feet, and Novelty Act. So, an impressive selection, certainly. Um, but we're going to start with Water Spider. Water Spider is is a lot of fun. Um, it's self-reflective. It's Dick thinking back on his, himself and his own profession and thinking back to his early short stories. It's about science fiction, the genre of science fiction. And, you know, Dick's just having a lot of fun with his colleagues 
and with himself and his earlier earlier writings. Essentially, the core idea of Water Spider is that future um, future people, people in the future, look back at the 20th century and particularly at 20th century science fiction as the golden age of precognition. And then the question is, were these precogs or were people just like directing technology, technological development to follow what they saw in science fiction? I think that's a really interesting question about science fiction altogether, right? When we go back and we look at, you know, what science fiction predicted, you know, what technologies, submarines, hot air balloons, you know, space travel, and then how much that was predicted or talked about in science fiction didn't come true, why certain technologies are plausible, why some science fiction writers got it right, why some science fiction writers got it wrong, you know, some soft science fiction, you know, I've been recently reading Dune and, you know, that stuff's unlikely to come, come to pass. But, you know, sometimes science fiction is consciously emulated, like in Stranger in the Strange Land, you had, I think it was called the Church of the All Worlds, was actually implemented by this guy, Oberon Zell, and he was actually consciously emulating the the sexual politics of Stranger in a Strange Land, and it had a role in the scientific and the sexual revolution of of the 1960s. So that's all. These are interesting questions to say the least. But I think it's a really fun idea that that people in the future look back at the 1950s and the science fiction writers of Dick's own generation and see them as precogs. But let's just jump right into the plot of Water Spider. Oh, first, when was this published? Um, it was published in If in January of 1964. Now, If magazine is actually mentioned in the story itself. Now, these are these are not presented in the story as science fiction magazines. They're presented in the story as precog journals or journals in which precogs tell their predictions. Um, where can you find it now if you don't have you know, the, the January 1964 issue of If? Well, you probably most likely find it in the fourth volume of Dick's Collected Stories, Minority Report and Other Classic Stories by Philip K. Dick. Okay, into the story. So we, we're, we're in the future, and a man named Aaron Tozo is thinking about how Earth has been sending prisoners on these doomed missions to Proxima on experiments on the functional one-way voyage to another star. And these keep failing due to the problem of re-entry. And this is because of the change of mass caused by being, they have to be shrunk down and then, I guess, re-expanded when they return. I, I think this goes back to an idea Dick played with in some of his earlier short stories. Uh, I forget what they were. I think um, um, prominent author was one of them, but there was a few others where this idea is played with that the problem with voyage to other stars is the expanding universe, or maybe that was a problem of time travel was the expanding universe. I think this may have a little bit more to do with the mass required to, you know, send things uh, far. So this actually may be harder science fiction than some of his earlier stuff, you know, dealing with this problem of, of the mass and, um, and voyage to other stars. But, you know, travel and size manipulation is something certainly Dick dealt with in his other stories. But that was, as I recall, time travel. So anyway, that's why they can't do it. That You know, they, they get people there, but they can't, like, bring them back to their regular size. Um, so Tozo eventually threatens his boss, Edwin Fermenti, that he's going to resign from his career, his position. If another trip goes wrong, he just can't handle the morality of sending these prisoners on these doomed, doomed missions. Um, now, th this is this I this. Where have I seen this before? 
I think it's in the Stephen King story, um, The Jaunt, right, where you have prisoners being sent on these experimental voyages. There, it's it's time travel draw, makes people insane because you experience like infinite time as you as you jaunt, right? So you can't be conscious. But there was these experiments with people, and they use like prisoners or something. But anyways, these prisoners are all dying, and Tozo can't handle it, so he says, I'm going to resign if another trip goes wrong. Fermenti then tells them that they have a new plan, that they're not going to continue using prisoners on suicide missions. They're instead going to go to the past and bring back precogs, precogs from the time before they were destroyed, use them to determine the formula for re-entry. And he tells them that the mid-20th century was this golden age for precogs. Now, after you read the story, you realize that he's actually talking about science fiction writers from the mid 20th century, uh, you know, and all their predictions. And apparently some of those predictions came true. Now, again, the question we, and that's why they get deemed precogs. But the question we might want to ask here is, one, are they precogs? And I think Dick might think that at times about himself. But also, is it just that science fiction gets emulated in actual technologies? So, um, so we're back. So we go back in time. It's it's like nineteen, the nineteen fifties, and the Library of Congress finds an article on. Actually, no, this is still in the past. So, so they he goes and searches like the Library of Congress, and he finds this a single article on the problem of mass mass restoration and interstellar travel in a 1955 issue of the precog journal called if now of course this is not a precog journal this is a science fiction journal in fact the one that this particular story is published in so anyways tozo reads this article and he realizes that this piece is actually describing their water spider program but it was renamed night flight while the story does not have the technical details he believes that the author pool anderson will know these details that he didn't share in the article and then help them solve their technological um, problem so anyways, the research team decides to send Tozo and another man, Jilly, to the Precog Convention in Berkeley, California, 1955. Now, of course, in 1955, Dick was not yet famous. So if we run into Dick in this story, it's not going to be as the relatively famous science fiction writer that he was in the mid-1960s. It's going to be as a relative unknown who's still publishing mostly in, I guess, lower, lower reputed science fiction magazines. So Tozo begins to research the social life of the time by reading these precog journals. And that, that's, that's kind of humorous because if he starts to dress and, you know, put on the mannerisms of what he finds in these journals, he's going to look like a, he's at a sci-fi or like a Star Trek convention or something. Anyways, uh, so uh, next, Tozo and Jilly enter the precog convention completely anachronistically dressed. As we predicted, they, they don't look anything like they should. Be look look like in the 1950s they claim to be representatives of the regional precog organization and of course the people are kind of confused about what they're talking about um, but tozo's amazed at what he sees and he decides to hold off the mission in order to take in some of the culture of these of these mid-20th century precogs they talk with the precogs at the gathering and jilly makes the mistake of discussing an article not yet written and so later they track down Anderson and pull him to the present with their time dredge technology. So Paul Anderson has been brought into the future to help solve this problem of, of size manipulation and space travel. So anyways, now Paul's in the future and he's brought before Fermenti, who's the head of this water spider program, and he explains everything that happened. Fermenti assures Paul Anderson that he'll be returned to his time shortly. 
Donald Nyes, the commander of the ship heading towards Proxima, complains about how they're being treated and how they're being experimented on. But Pete Bailey suggests that they make the best of it and that they can read plenty of articles from the old precog journals that will maybe reassure them that there'll be a technological solution found very quickly to their, their predicament. Now, one article is called The Variable Man, and this is relevant because it's about faster than light travel. Of course, this is a story written by Philip K. Dick, um, and it's one of his better stories from, from his earlier period and one of my favorite because it's really about the frontier and this kind of optimism about tinkering and work. It's, it's got a lot of great stuff. And I did a whole episode on that. And it's a major part of my, my discussion, which I had earlier on, on the history and the history, Dick's vision of the frontier in his earlier writing. I did a whole episode on that too. But anyways, Niles, instead of reading The Variable Man, focuses on an article in a December 1962 issue of If. Anderson believes that he's been tricked by his agents. He promises that he's working on his story and that they don't have to do this to him. Because he still doesn't believe he's been sent into the future. Fermenti asks about the mass restoration formula implied in his article, Night Flight. They explain to him that he's actually a precog and... They use an example of an article called The Defenders, again by Philip K. Dick, that proved to be exactly what happened after the Third World War in 1996. Anderson points out that some science fiction writers believe that they can see the future. Maybe, well, I guess he, I don't know if he met Dick by 1955, but, you know, if he, you know, and I don't think Dick was playing with this idea that he sees the future yet in 1955. But anyways, he says that that's an idea of some science fiction writers. He but he doesn't really believe that. Anderson doesn't buy this at all. And he asks to go look at a store to buy something for his wife. And then during that, he escapes. He looks for a library so he can research what has happened since 1954. And when he tells a clerk that he has a newborn child, he is accused of being a criminal. A woman helps him escape the situation. And he tries to get her to help him find some library materials. But he's horrified when he mentions educating children. So we get some cultural differences here. Apparently having kids or educating kids is something that's frowned upon in this period of time. So meanwhile, um, Fermenti is not too worried about Poole Anderson escaping simply because he looks so strange for the times. So he'll be easily identified. And then Anderson finds his path blocked by a slime mold that communicates telepathically. The slime mold explains to Anderson that there's a moratorium on childbirth and that there's been a civil war between fanatics led by a man named Gutman and liberals led by a general named McKinley. Anyone who does not seem to conform to society is labeled as a follower of Gutman and as a potential terrorist. Anyone who proposes a subjective value system is suspect as well. And here we're reminded of Philip Dick's story, um, the man, or his novel, The World Jones Made, which has the same idea. That basically any subjective value statement is an opinion or is, is or any opinion is criminalized. As he leads Anderson back to the spaceport, he gives him some more details on Terra's history. As Anderson prepares to leave for other planets, he is stopped by Fermenti. Anderson tries to flee again, and Fermenti shoots him with a stun pistol. Anderson wakes up and is put in front of a typewriter, and he's told that he must construct the mass restoration formula so that they can travel in interstellar space. He finally completes his task. Tozo and Fermenti prepare to take him to the Department of Phenology for a penology for a brain wipe. So the Department of Penology, I guess, is that the criminal justice system? So they brain wipe criminals in the future, perhaps. 
But anyways, he's going to be brainwiped and sent back to his own time. Tozo eventually realizes that the manuscript script that Anderson wrote disappears as soon as the mind wipe is done, and he has returned to the 1950s. The article Night Flight no longer exists, and now that issue is called has a story called The Mold of Yancey by Philip K. Dick. Anderson must have envisioned his experience in the future as the basis of Night Flight. When his mind was wiped, that story could no longer be written. So back at the science fiction convention, Anderson pulls out of his pocket some notes he wrote with ideas for a future story about a tyrant named Gutman and an intelligent slime mold. And I don't know if that story ever is, is real. It sounds more like a Philip Dick thing, actually, the, sl the slime molds. Um, Dick, of course, writes a, writes a story, writes a novel that has a very prominent character who is a conscious slime mold, and that is uh, The Clans of the Elfane Moon. So anyways, that's the plot of the story. So obviously there's no point to look for the story Night Flight. Um, Dick explains why this story was never written. But I don't know, maybe if you had a conversation with Poole Anderson and he, you know, he got the idea from him at one point, I don't know. Um, but anyways, that, that, that's what happened. So it's... Yeah, I don't think the story should be taken too seriously. I think Dick is having a little bit of fun with his colleagues and the whole profession of science fiction. Um, and I, like a lot of his stories in the 60s, I like because they're rather chill. I, I think his early stories tended on, they were often funny, but they're basically serious thematically. And his later stories are, are so weird and odd and, and really kind of tie, they tie in various ways to the Vallis stuff to his 1973 experiences and his response to it in exegesis and they're just kind of weird but he's having a lot of fun in the 1960s the same way he is in a lot of his novels just kind of enjoying himself and you know these are these are tend to be humorous stories that even if they have important messages for us and sometimes some of them are actually quite horrific in a way but they're they're kind of fun. There is a handful of, of more serious, like The Faith of Our Fathers. That's a more serious story. But, you know, by and large, I think there's a lot of fun and joy in these 1960 short stories. And this is certainly one of them. There's just a couple ways to think about what's going on in the story. Basically, I think the heart of what we can interpret and think about is to what degree are pre science fiction writers precogs or not. Um, but I think the middle of the in the middle of the 20th century, people started to mind science fiction thinking that they were you know, the idea that people started to mine science fiction thinking they were writing precog they were precognitive futurists and then modeled their society after that is rather fascinating, right? Of course, we've there's other stories and, you know, ideas by writers of books becoming, books that were fiction becoming prophetic or becoming religious texts um, in the future. Can't think of any off the top of my head, but um, they're certainly there. You know, there's probably a good reason to think that a lot of the stories in the Bible, for instance, were just myths and legends, especially in the Old Testament things, um, and then later on became religious texts. So this book could explain like the funky clothing, the strange hairstyles and the bizarre ideas of the future society. Is It's not because that's actually what people wanted to wear. It's because they read science fiction and said, you know, we should dress this way. Um, the second idea though is hinted at the end and that is Anderson brings back from the future a piece of paper with ideas and the so science fiction writers have in the sense seen the future now Paul Anderson isn't a precog here but he has been to the future he forgets it but he's been to the future and he brought back this 
these notes from the future and these create this nice little cycle in which they go to the future they have their minds clear but they're left with some small relics of their experiences which then become um, the science fiction tales so it's not direct precognition but it is some knowledge of the future so we got nice little cycles there. The people in the future think science fiction writers are precogs and pull them to their time, inadvertently implanting the ideas that will appear to predict the future in their heads. The most convincing explanation in the story is that science fiction writers, though, are precogs themselves. And I, I think that's what Dick sort of wants to say, or at least that Phil K. Dick is a precog, because you, the examples we have here of, of direct predictions in science fiction novels don't come from Poole Anderson's work directly, but rather come from the works of Philip Dick, Variable Man, and The Defenders, especially The Defenders. That's the best example of the accuracy of Dick's precognition. Now, much of what Dick is doing in Water Spider is having fun with the culture of science fiction in the 1950s. It was a relatively small group of people. They met at conferences and things, but they'd relative, they pretty much knew each other professionally and personally. They helped each other get their stories published, and they had connections to editorial boards. So the story is a bit of a love letter to the community of science fiction writers from the 50s, the community that, that started Dick's career. Um, and now, bear in mind that Dick had spent much of the late 60s trying to get out of science fiction and trying to write mainstream fiction. Right, so we're trying to write mainstream fiction. And so in this way, the story becomes a bit of a, of a acknowledgement of his debt he owes to, to the science fiction profession. Now let's talk about the more horrific aspects of the story. Certainly the future world that's described is not pleasant at all. Political prisoners are commonly experimented on in the hopes of achieving interstellar travel. Their lives are basically forfeited. It seems mind-wiping is also a form of punishment. Those who are sent out on these ex expeditions are never returning. After a civil war, we find that anyone who is not conforming is deemed dangerous. Nonconformity is so harshly resisted that even children is not allowed because it will allow greater diversity in society. The idea that children are scary because of their creativity is, and therefore banned is pretty horrifying. And this is, of course, a constant tension in Dick's world, the, the generational conflict and the unending struggle also between individuality and the banality of, of, of mass culture is something Dick is interested in and writes a lot about. Um, but I think especially the, the, the generational conflict, this this idea that the elders think that they know what's best and therefore silence or isolate or manipulate and misuse children comes up so often in his work, especially um, in Dr. Futurity and the crack in space. The crack in space is really the, his central statement on a generational conflict, I think. So, um, you know, the fact that these are concerns of Dick and their concerns in the story show we have Dick's stories being talked about, right? And the mold of Yancey is what replaces Anderson's story Night Flight, and the mold of Yancey is a story about conformity. In fact, you wouldn't catch this. If you didn't read Mold of Yancey, you wouldn't appreciate how much, how important it is that that story is chosen here. But we have read the Mold of Yancey, and so we know it's a story about conformity, and therefore we have an example of precognition. Dick, again, being a precog, seeing a future in which homogeneity um, is important. Now there, homo homo homogeneity is achieved through subtle cultural suggestions by the figure, uh, kind of a, an important symbolic figure, Yancey, who gives these folksy speeches to people. But um, there, it's kind of cultural suggestion that pushes people to, to conformity. In Water Spider, though, it, it emerges much more brutally through secret police, gulags, and other terrors. 
So anyways, um, it's a good story. I, I rather like this one. It's It's got a great shout out to Poole Anderson. I don't know much about Dick's own relationship with Poole Anderson. Um, to what degree he helped them and, you know, or what, or if he, if he asked Poole Anderson if he could be in the story. I don't know, but, you know, th- that's there. If you're if a Poole Anderson fan, you could take a look at the story and see if Dick does a good job by, by that writer. Um, but otherwise, a fun story about precognition and a fun story about the science fiction writing profession and how we can interpret and what's the place of science fiction in our actual futures. I, I, I urge you to go look at uh, David Graeber's article. I think it was an article, but first it was a talk he gave on future technologies and bureaucracy. And that was when he was researching his book on, on bureaucracy. And he asked this question, like, why is it that, you know, science fiction for the 19th century tended to come true you know it, it was predictive and that people were inspired by science fiction actually led to these technologies like submarines and air flight and hot air balloons and stuff like that but the a lot of the predictive technologies of the 20th century haven't come true and one answer is that it's just the imagination has gone beyond human capacity or even technological possibility but graber's answer is more that bureaucracy has stifled potential creativity and I forget the name of it, but if you search Graber Future Technology or something on YouTube, you might find this talk. And it's a, it's a rather good talk on bureaucracy and its impact on, on creativity. And so I urge you to look at that uh, in relation to this story. So with that, I'll let you go. Um, so thanks, as always, for listening to this podcast and, and supporting this read-through of the works of Philip K. Dick. In the next episode, we'll be looking at, at Novelty Act also published in 1964. And this that story is very much um, playing with ideas that will appear in the novel, The Simulacrum, uh, which was published also in 1964. So um, we've already looked at Simulacrum, actually. Um, but so that's as retreading that, that ground. But it does a few things a little bit differently, as always. These stories are essentially standalone pieces, like Perky Pat and the Three Stigmata Pulmerage, which despite their commonalities in some ways, they really do do their own thing. That's the case, I think, with Novelty Act as well. So um, thanks for listening. I look forward to talking about Novelty Act with you in the next episode. So if, if you have it, take a look at it before I post that in a few days. As always, again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. You must you find the And contentment forever If you